Dr. Brown, thank you for joining me in the throes of the COVID virus. And I'd like to spend just a little bit of time talking about viruses. Good morning. I'm Dr. Jim Brown, and uh, I grew up on the Jersey Shore, kind of like where the rivers from the shore and the Pine Barrens, which stretch out across all of southern New Jersey, where they come together. Could you take a moment and give the listeners in a discussion of what a virus is? A virus is not a living creature, okay? It's like a bacteria is actually a living thing because it has everything it needs to duplicate itself and all the fine food and all the rest of that. A virus is kind of like the worst relative you could have in the world, the one who doesn't work, <laughs> who doesn't uh, do anything, but likes to come into your house and use everything that you have, the bedroom, your towels, your water, your food, and everything. A virus comes in, and usually just a piece of DNA or a piece of RNA is all they do, and that is what they bring in and infect you with. So it goes in and it takes over your whole cell. They don't need, you know, you build everything that virus needs. And it's just directed by what's really cool. And this is just wonderful things. Like in our, in our, on our bodies, our genes are made up of DNA. And that DNA is passed on to next generations and that sort of thing. And it's like it combines with, you know, here's your wife. You combine with her DNA, your DNA and it goes in to make your baby, that kind of thing. Well, the viruses, they just have DNA or RNA, and that's all they have. That's all they need. And it infects your cell and takes over everything. It's really your cells that produce the virus. It comes in and decides it's going to use your cellular machinery because it's, you know, you got all of, every one of your cells already has this little physical plant set up to do all sorts of things. So the virus says, well, I'll have it make copies of me. So sure enough, your cell will fill up with all these viruses, stealing everything from you many times. And like the AIDS virus, what it used to love to do is it used to steal your outside coat. On the way out of your cell, it would wrap it around itself and then walk out into your immune system wearing your clothes. And sure enough, that's why it was very difficult to try to treat the AIDS virus and come up with any kind of a vaccine or something like that. It was like it, it was it was the ultimate uh, thing to fool your immune system. Anyhow, uh, college. My dad actually was able to get a job at Rutgers University. Now, Rutgers University, if you got any job there whatsoever, as long as you were full time, you could send your kids to college tuition free. So my dad deliberately took the job. So anyhow, I went to Rutgers and. But at the time, Rutgers was very big into antibiotics and all the rest. Uh, Solomon Waxman, who actually coined the term antibiotics, had the Waxman Institute of Microbiology there. And especially the reason why there were so many pharmaceuticals in New Jersey was they wanted to get close to Solomon Waxman. And he founded the Waxman Institute of Microbiology. And I got into microbiology. I love that whole thing of looking through a microscope. And to me, believe it or not, you know, I look through that microscope and I see how that invisible world is. And it was just amazing to me, the complexity, the sheer genius 
And then to me, that I had a very strong belief in God. And to me, that just, you know, yeah, that's God created that. You know how you look into a telescope, you see that out there in, the, the, in space, and all there's a whole world out there that you have to look through a telescope to see. Well, microbiology, I could see that whole invisible world. And it was so exciting to me. And I was probably the number one school or close to it in the country dealing with microbiology. That's what Rutgers was known for. So I went through microbiology. So I went on to get both a master's and a PhD there. I went to the Waxman Institute of Microbiology, and it was cool PhD program at Rutgers University at the Waxman Institute. At the time, AIDS was breaking out, and I was really getting my PhD in microbiology, working for a professor who was working on AIDS at the time. He was uh, immunology, and I was working one of the very first AIDS researchers, getting a PhD in microbiology on AIDS, and it was just mid-80s. I got my PhD in 1986. I got both the master's and PhD the same day, and it was like later on in life, I learned how I met people, like especially I became an AIDS researcher. And I was involved, um, the Mammoth Ocean AIDS Information Group. And it was mostly, I would say, homosexual men and many agnostics and many atheists. There's really, you know, not the belief in God, but there were two of us, Sister Margaret, who was Catholic, and then, of course, I was this group, uh, and they didn't like calling the names. It was, uh, but, you know, they were known as the Plymouth Brethren. So I had this AIDS ministry. Now, mind you, I had my PhD in uh, microbiology. I was working for the state at that time as an AIDS researcher, hands-on, growing the virus, that kind of thing. And in my spare time at night, I was involved helping people because these people were dying. They would like... Um, we're close to Asbury Park, kind of where Bruce Springsteen is strong and that kind of thing. Right there, it was a huge outbreak of uh, AIDS. And these people were dying. And a lot of the, the churches and that sort of thing had this real attitude about people who had AIDS. It was like they were like modern lepers. However, when um, people started coming to the churches who happened to have kids who were eight, uh, who were uh, HIV positive. Oh no, we have a child in our our, our nursery here who's uh, HIV positive. What do we do? Well, they would. I had this ministry through the church, uh, an AIDS ministry, where I'd go out and talk to churches about AIDS and how to deal with it safely. But the cool thing is for me, Sister Margaret and I became good friends, and we were like, um, I realized this lady loved Jesus the way I did. She believed, you know, this was a believer. And I was like, and what we didn't do, we didn't go out and like, there was a whole bunch of people who really were, you know, had AIDS, that sort of thing. I didn't go preaching to them. What I did is like later on, like, especially near the end of their life, they would all of a sudden, you know, ask me about my beliefs because they saw, you know, hey, there was something different about uh, 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 Sister Margaret and Dr. Brown. And then I would share my beliefs with them. But I wasn't there to, you know, make that. My job was to help them. I would, especially near the end of their lives, their, usually their significant other would die of AIDS. They would be living in some welfare motel someplace, dying of AIDS. And they wouldn't have 
much money. I would go out and help buy them food, bring their food back to them and wash their clothes, stuff like that. That whole hands and feet of Jesus thing, that really impressed me. And uh, it was, that's the way I look at my religion as far as what, you know, as I say, I have a strong belief. And that's what I did is like, there I was, I was an AIDS researcher during the day and at night I would help them, the people who had AIDS and they would like, it was horrible. Like somebody who had AIDS and near the end, I could remember this one guy and we would be talking and all the rest. Well, he decided, you know, where I live a mile from the ocean here in New Jersey. And what he did is he just decided to swim out as far as he could and deliberately drown himself out there. And they found his body like three days later. And I'm like, that's so horrible. And there was one guy, he was living in this little welfare motel, and his family deserted him because, well, he was he was gay, he had AIDS, and, you know, and his significant other died. So he's by himself, totally, his whole family and friends, they treated him like young lepers. And the thing about me is I saw at that time, unlike coronavirus, that you were only if you touched their body fluids, that was the only way you were going to get it. Or shared your bloodstream back and forth, uh, IV drug uh, use, that kind of thing. You weren't going to get it from hugging each other, from holding each other. And I remember this one guy, he calls me up. He says, Jim, I think I'm near death. He says, could you come over and and be with me? And he comes over, you know, when I get over to this little motel, and he says, can you hold me? So sure enough, I held him. And I'm like thinking to myself, oh my, you know, I've got to be careful because his body fluids are, could be loaded with the virus. So anyhow, I held him, hugged him, and he died with his head on my shoulder and he vomited all over my shoulder. And I'm like, oh no, the body fluids, you know, that kind of thing. I figured, okay, well, so sure enough, I called the police and all the rest, told them, I think the guy died. I was, a, you know, even though I'm not a, I'm a PhD, not an MD, uh, but I was on the uh, I was on the first aid squad, that kind of thing. I, I knew he died. Uh, but I took a shower right away because I figured, boy, did I just get splashed with the virus. But, you know, even at the time I was growing the virus during the day, I remember I cut myself. And in those days, um, you had your gloves on and your lab coat. And I had the concentrated virus I had just grown up in my hands. And uh, it was in like test tubes and stuff. Well, I ended up tripping and falling. And I had the AIDS virus right in my hand in, uh, in these test tubes. And sure enough, uh, when, I, when I hit the floor, I tried to hold on to it. So, but sure enough, tubes broke, uh, cut my wrist above the glove, below the lab coat. And I got splashed with concentrated AIDS virus. And I knew that you know, I got exposed big time by the concentrated stuff. And uh, so I went over. We had just bought six bottles of Clorox by the sink. Now, this is something important for all of you. If you take a 1 to 10 or a 1 to 100 dilution of Clorox, it kills anything that crawls. So I went over to the sink and I just grabbed the first bottle and then I started, you know, put it right on my, my wrist because uh, I got the glove and the lab coat off. And then I realized, no, Jim, you got to dilute that. It's much more effective. So sure enough, I, I dumped a, a lot of it down the sink and then I, I filled up with water, chugged it back and forth. So it was diluted between one and 10 and one to 100 and then bathed my whole self there with it. And people said, you know, later on, you know, that was pretty hazardous to your skin. 
and, and at that time, my feeling was, hey, the hand was expendable because if I didn't kill that virus, it was going to kill me. So I was the only one. I was at the State Department of Health at the time. I was the only one doing the uh, Western blot, uh, the definitive assay for AIDS. So sure enough, every week I would put my own blood in there to see if I was turning positive. And I deliberately delayed having a child, uh, but I deliberately testing myself and uh, I didn't develop it. And that was kind of a scary thing. But I went all over the world with, I had been an AIDS researcher at the State Department of Health actually growing the virus. When I was over in India, I went to visit a leprosarium. And this was where people that had leprosy were. And still, that was still a thing in India. But guess what? They were putting all the people who had HIV into those leprosarians. If they had AIDS, that's where they were. So now, one big thing I was preaching back then to everyone, uh, different now with coronavirus, a whole different animal. But at that time, if somebody was HIV positive, you could hold them, you could touch them. You weren't going to get AIDS that way. It was strictly the body fluid. And to me, the guy who was showing me around was one of their ministers of health. And he was, you know, taking me around there uh, to the leprosarium. And he said, oh, don't go in there. He says, they're all little kids. They all have AIDS. So I walked in, grabbed the first kid I could find, picked him up, hugged him, and then handed him to the guy. And I said, you're not going to get AIDS this way. And that was something that was important to me. Now, what happened? I was working for Hoffman LaRoche at the time, and they pulled a string. They found out Mother Teresa was going to be the keynote of that conference, Hope 92 World Conference on AIDS. It was going to be in Bombay. Now they call it Mumbai. She got sick, and Hoffman LaRoche pulled a string and got me to give the keynote address that she was supposed to give. So I was all set for that. This was like, wow, national conference uh, uh, given the keynote address. Uh, so sure enough, right before I was going to give the address, Mother Teresa shows up. And you could tell she was weak. Um, she wasn't doing well. But she came there to thank me for giving her address for her. And she came and she kissed my right hand. And I was like, oh my. What a beautiful thing. Because I always, I always knew about Mother Teresa with the hands and feet of, of, of Jesus. Being, you know, Christians should be the hands and feet of Jesus. Always loved that. and. This was like I grew up and part of my family was trying to teach me to hate the Catholic Church. And I'd have to say, I absolutely love the Catholic Church. Public health and environmental labs, growing up, all sorts of viruses, all sorts of bacteria. If there was an outbreak, we would work hand in hand with epidemiology to figure out what it was, what's causing this disease. And my crew, would all be dealing with growing it up, finding out what it was. And then epidemiology would go out and find, well, how did it get here? Who's infected? And how do we stop it? it I, I loved it. It was the job of my dreams, helping. And it was, and of course, at night, I was still volunteering my time with the Mammoth Ocean AIDS Information Group, helping there. I have loved being part of public health because microbiology and public health historically went hand in hand together. So... I really love being able to do something about it, be able to help and uh, make it so we can save people's lives. And, and that's the one thing I, I absolutely love about public health is you can make a major impact there. Uh, 
I used to be assistant commissioner of health for the state of New Jersey. And I realized that there were certain things that they didn't want to get out there. And I was really surprised at this, that, you know, I would think they would do everything for the public good. Uh, However, if that steps on a political toe or two, it's amazing how that could be a problem. I know in New Jersey at the time, we were one of the states, and we still are, have a major problem with Lyme's disease. And of course, it was from Lyme, Connecticut is where it originally began. A guy named Willie Bergdorfer was the one who actually uh, was the one who kind of found it and put it forward as, hey, here's a tick-borne disease that's a real problem. And so sure enough, in New Jersey, we started getting it a major league problem ourselves. And the governor at the time, I won't name the governor, but decided they wanted the information hidden because they figured it would hurt New Jersey tourism because the little ticks were out in the summer and, you know, people loved walking in the woods and that sort of thing. And they didn't want to have a bad summer as far as people worrying about these ticks and what have you. So they were actually going to be closing one of our labs down that dealt with it. Unfortunately, that was driven home to me in public health when I first started. I got my PhD. I was an AIDS researcher. And I got a job basically growing the AIDS virus for the state of New Jersey and doing the testing there, the Western blot. I was the one doing all the testing. It, It hit home right away that I remember, in fact, back then, a lot of things came down the Hudson River and then would wash up on the Jersey Shore. Well, they happened to have three test tubes that kind of washed up on the Jersey Shore and they decided, well, you know what, we're going we're gonna to give that to the State Department of Health and have them check it just to see if it has the AIDS virus there. Well, I did the testing on it and uh, sure enough, two of the three were positive for the antibody to the AIDS virus. Well, <laughs> well, on the good side of it, it panicked people so much that they decide to really clean up their act about, okay, what goes where, how they get it there and all the rest. And the whole thing about bloodborne pathogens and medical waste, that hit big time. And it's, you know, it actually hurt the, the economy because people were afraid to go in the ocean because of it. And of course, if you happen to step on the tube and cut yourself with it, there's, there's a possibility viruses could have survived. But the fact that it, it showed a problem we had with throwing garbage into the ocean, and that had been something that they had done such a long time. Well, they had these very strict rules now because of medical waste that it had to be dealt with, had to be bagged and all the rest. So it was actually a good thing <laughs> for the wrong reason. It was like that fear, that tremendous fear they had of the AIDS virus back then. And I'll tell you, compared to what we have now, what a difference. The what we have now is so much more dangerous as far as its ease of transmission. The AIDS virus was kind of like a bloodborne pathogen, uh, uh, any kind of body fluid you came in contact with. And of course, you know, hey, if these test tubes are being dumped down the Hudson River and it floats down around Sandy Hook and then washes up on the Jersey Shore, yeah, that's going to affect things. In fact, and part of my job, like uh, I was, uh, when I was assistant commissioner of health for the state, I was the assistant commissioner over the public health and environmental labs. So 
if there was something to kind of either a virus or, or a bacteria or what have you, that was my baby to try to find out what it was and work with epidemiology to find out, okay, where did this thing come from? How did it get here? How was it transmitted? That kind of thing. And I found that as being a microbiologist, absolutely, um, this is what I was trained to do. And I really enjoyed getting on top of it. And there were lots of, all the time, there would be outbreaks of various things. And I thought it was very helpful trying to nail it down and all the rest. And one thing that really hit me was when they actually had an outbreak in New Jersey. We, we found a number of people in New Jersey were coming down with uh, Salmonella Hartford, a very rare Salmonella, but one that is very resistant to acid. Most Salmonella, if there's an acid environment, it kills it off. But this one, not so much. So anyhow, we're putting the whole thing together. We're finding it all over the state. And epidemiology is like, hmm, we can't find anything in the state tying the whole thing together. But they found out that Orlando, Florida, in fact, Disney World, in fact, within Disney World, a, uh, a specific steamboat <laughs> uh, there is what they traced the, could trace the whole thing back to. And what happened is they hid that from the public. Normally, every week, the CDC would put out what they call the Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report, MMWR. And it would tell everybody, okay, here's our problems this week. Here's what you need to know about. And here's the way to stop, you know. And this was really before the internet got going. Because once the internet got going, you couldn't hide things the way you could back then. But I was surprised because New Jersey was the first one to find this. And then other states started reporting it. You know, they'd all go to the CDC, report it to the CDC. And what they did is they traced it back to fresh squeezed orange juice in Disney World. That was actually the, um, the one steamboat it was on. It was other ones as well. Uh, but it was primarily this one. But they quickly traced it back to northern Florida to this one uh, orange orchard where what they were doing is, you know how like oranges, you could pick them off the orange tree. And what they would do, though, is some of the oranges would fall off the orange tree. And what they did there is pick them up and then sold them for making fresh squeezed orange juice. And it just so happens there was a pile of manure not far away. Of course, that's where the bacteria came from, the Salmonella Hartford. So sure enough, it was on the outside of the oranges. And when they squeezed it, bingo, it got into the orange juice. And uh, so I was amazed. This did not make, even though 13, 14 states, I remember at the time, and it went beyond that, it wasn't being mentioned at all. And I went up to the commissioner of health and I said, uh, why isn't this being mentioned? Because it's a national outbreak. So, well, Jim, in a pay grade much higher than us, they decided since they ran it down, found out where it was being caused and shut it down right away, they figured they wouldn't give Florida a bad day financially or a bad month, what have you. And so it didn't go reported until three years later. 
And I know I published it in one of the things I was dealing with, but I was a little upset at uh, when they did publish it. They left my name out of it (laughs) and uh, a whole bunch of other people's names got in there. But it was funny. New Jersey was number one. But similar things are happening now. Things are being hidden. Tests are not being, you know, the, the number of tests being done for the coronavirus have been cut. What I didn't realize at the time was when you were assistant commissioner, I thought I could have that job for a political aspect to it, where when they changed governors, uh, you got changed too. Uh, And sure enough, that came up. They ended up, uh, I had to find a job someplace else. So I got a job working back in the uh, pharmaceutical community, and I became a vice president for a little pharmaceutical company doing all sorts of testing and stuff. And um But then what I did is company got bought out and the guy came in. I was vice president. He came in. The president came in and said, oh, we just got bought out by the British. But there I was, PhD, former at that time, a vice president of a pharmaceutical. And there I was out of a job. So like going down to unemployment at the first time, I'm like, whoa, (laughs) not used to this. But what was really cool, I had taken a number of students on and we're training them in our laboratory. And it was really cool because then New Jersey City University called me up. They said, hey, Jim, we're giving you an award for training our students and all the rest. And I said, well, I said, I've just been fired. And they said, really? You know what? Come work for us. Come teach for us. So that's how I got into teaching. The COVID-19 pandemic has been with all of us now for several months. Dr. Brown does give us an opportunity to safely cross the intersection of science and public policy. Thank you, Dr. Brown.